Well, good morning again, and uh, it's our time where we turn our attention to God's Word. So if you have a copy of God's Word there in front of you, why don't you go ahead and grab it, and uh, you can turn to Second Peter. While we're doing that, I just want to remind you of a couple things that are important to us as a church. Um, the first thing is this, is that we believe in the expository preaching of God's Word. Um, last week, we finished First Peter together. Um, after studying it for uh, over a year of digging into God's truth and God's word. And we believe that we study the Bible the way God gave it to us. And God gave it to us book by book, um, letter by letter. And so we study it book by book and we study it letter by letter. And we um, make sure that we dig as deep as we can so that we can worship as high as we can and reach as far as we can. But that starts with a deep understanding of knowing who God is of knowing his truth. And so we take each book at a time, each verse at a time, each section at a time. And, and you guys have heard me say this before, but it's worth mentioning it again because we're about to start a new book. And the question is, is why are we just starting another book? Well, that's the answer, because this is the way God gave it to us. And so uh, we're going to study it and teach it and preach it the way it was intended to be uh, in that way, wanting to make sure that we pull out all the truth that we can um, and the right, uh, the right interpretation of the Bible, which there's only one interpretation that's right, leads to the right application of the Word of God. Our doctrine always informs our duty. Our belief always informs our behavior. If our belief is off, then our behavior is off. If our doctrine is wrong, then our duty will be wrong. And so we have to make sure that we get uh, A right if we want to get B right. And so the first thing we need to do is study God's Word in this way. So if you're in 2 Peter, this is fantastic because you guys are thinking, my Bible naturally opens already to 1 Peter, and now I just, it just opens, lay it down on my lap, and it just opens right up now. We just have to flip the page over one time, and now we're straight into 2 Peter. And the theme of 2 Peter is this. If you're taking notes, the theme of 2 Peter is this, is that we are, Peter wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the overarching thing, that Peter wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we live in this world that is full of evil and corruption and sin, believers should grow in holiness. Believers should grow in godliness, and their lives should reflect moral beauty. That, that's what Peter wants us to understand in all of this. So this morning, we're just going to take the first two verses here, the introduction here, the first two verses. We're going to take a look at those two verses after we do a little bit of an overview. And then together, as you can see right in front of me, we'll have communion together. Um, and then uh, we'll be off into the rest of the day. But let's just read it from the start. Second Peter, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Simeon, Simeon, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we have our Bibles opened right in front of us. The Holy Word of God, the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Your Word is trustworthy, and we pray that this morning as we study your Word that you would speak these truths to our hearts. 
that because of our time that we have in your word, you would make these doctrines, you would make these truths come alive, not just in our head, but in our hearts. And out of that would flow the way in which you would have us live a life that is pleasing to your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, like many of you, you have watched America fall into a rapid moral decline. What was once right in America is now wrong, and what was once wrong in America is now right. Evil is now celebrated in our country. Abortion is now a healthcare option when it shouldn't be an option at all. I was just looking it up. Around the world, there's already been 16 million babies aborted around the world just this year, and it's, it's only May. The transgender movement is making headway. It is growing rapidly, gaining, gaining incredible speed, and it's running straight into the church. Radical feminism is destroying families. Radical feminism is destroying women and women's sports. It's not enhancing it by any means. CRT, intersectionality, woke ideology, all have its roots in separating people into two classes, the oppressed and the oppressor. Jesus only saw one race, and that was the human race. Jesus only viewed people in two categories, sinners and saints. Cultural Marxism is now normal curriculum in elementary schools, even Christian elementary schools. Puberty blockers are given out to kids. The last I read is early as age seven. Safe houses are available for preteens who want to change their gender. Their parents don't even need to know where they are. That was a bill that was just signed not too long ago by our own governor. Crime, murder, domestic abuse, suicide is worse than it's ever been. The marriage is no longer sacred anymore. And in America, you could say this, that the God of materialism reigns, the God of self dominates, the God of pleasure rules, and the God of money controls. And the sad part about all of this is this, is that Christians and churches are becoming more and more tolerant of such evils, more and more tolerant of such sins in the name of love and acceptance. In the name of not wanting to offend, in the name of not wanting to hurt someone else's feelings, Christians and churches are accepting such sinful practices and even welcoming them into their church. We don't want to offend anybody because if we offend them, then they won't come to know Christ. We want to make everyone happy. You can say this, that many Christians are finding themselves in the middle, in the, in the what you would call the mushy middle that isn't offensive to anybody, but holds no convictions about anything. They don't want to turn somebody off from the gospel, so they'll just accept their sins. They don't want to offend, so they won't hold to any biblical conviction. They say nothing. They're in the middle where everybody can be happy. Their conviction is this, not to have a conviction. 
their stance is this, not to have any stances. Because if you don't have a stance and if you don't have a conviction, then nobody can get offended. And I want to tell you this, church, that the mushy middle is the most dangerous place that a Christian can be. Because it lacks the courage of people to stand for the truth and biblical fidelity and to hold to the biblical morality that Jesus taught us to hold to. In fact, the middle is very, very confusing to the watching world. The watching world is looking at spineless Christians who hold to no values and no truth and say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus die for that? Don't you hold to something? Don't you hold to some morality, to some values? Is there a line at all? Cultural Christianity is the dinner table for the, de- for the devil where he feasts off men and women who are more concerned about pleasing man than pleasing God. And the last place a Christian wants to find themselves is in the mushy middle of Christianity. The middle says this, if Christians were kinder, people would come to know Christ. If Christians would just love more and be more accepting of others and more tolerant of sins, more open-minded, if we could just find a common ground in morality, then people will come to know Christ. It started a a while ago, maybe you've heard of it, it's called the seeker-sensitive movement. The very name itself will, will tell you exactly what it is, sensitivity. Since the seeker-sensitive movement, which was designed to bring more people into church, which is designed to make churches grow, since the seeker-sensitive movement, church attendance has declined by 30%. Churches would just become more tolerant, then more people would come to their church, but as Christians have become more tolerant. The culture has become more aggressive against Christians. You say, Joe, why is this so important? What does this have to do with anything? Well, this is so important because this, there's going to come a day when there will no longer be a middle by which Christians can hide in. There will no longer be a place where Christians can hide in a convictionless Christianity. There will be a day, and it's coming, and it's coming sooner than later, where the Christian will have to decide whose side they're really on. They have to make a decision to stop straddling the line between the world and the culture on one side and Christ and his word on the other side. They will be asked this, will I walk with Christ or will I walk with the world? And what's going to happen is this, the fearful are going to walk with the world and the faithful are going to walk with Christ. And the middle will be gone. The line will be divided so widely that you won't have the opportunity to straddle it, and you certainly won't have the opportunity to swim in the middle of it. The middle will soon be gone. And only the faithful to God and His Word with genuine convictions will be left. And listen, this is, this is going to be true. Listen very closely. Your children and your grandchildren will not be able to hide in the mushy middle. They won't be able to hide there. Cultural 
acceptable Christianity is dying in America. That's the reality. And here's why I say all that. Here's why I bring all of that up for us is this. We need to be men and women with courage and conviction in these days. We need to be men and women who understand salvation. We need to be men and women who understand what it is to follow Jesus Christ, what it means to be faithful. We need to be men and women who understand the knowledge of God, who understand the Bible, who understand who Jesus really was. We need to know what sound biblical interpretation is. We can't get away with hiding anymore. We can't get away with being in the middle anymore. We need those who live courageously in obedience to his word, no matter if that obedience means hurting somebody else's feelings. Because that's where we are. And I want you to know this, church, because I believe that clarity is important. Here's the clarity that I need you to understand, church. We are a church that stands with biblical conviction. We are a church that stands against the cultural norms that are trying to invade the church walls on a daily basis. We are a church that cares deeply about people. We are a church that loves the lost. We are a church that cares about those who don't know who Jesus Christ is, but we will in no way tolerate sins and think that that's the best way to win the lost. We don't want to be a church in the middle. We want to be a church of conviction and courage. You say, why do we want to be that way? Because that's who Jesus was. Jesus was an amazing teacher of God's word. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on Mount, the very last line of it says this, that he spoke with such courage and authority What did he do in the entire Sermon on the Mount? He called out people for cultural sins that they were committing that would have gone against what we even believe, what even the culture believes right now. Jesus called out all of those things. He called them to heartfelt obedience, radical obedience. In fact, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gave two avenues by which people could go. You could either go as someone who has, uh, has, dead fruit or living fruit. You could be as someone who has either uh, uh, settled their life on the rock or one who settled their life in the sand. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. That's how Jesus taught. And at the same time, while he called out sins and he called out sinners and he called to allegiance to Jesus Christ, he had an amazing ability to love the unlovely. So that's the church that we want to be. One that is willing and able to say, hey, Jesus would have never said that. Jesus would have never been okay with that. But at the same time, love those who are hard to love. In an amazing way, Jesus would call people to faith and repentance and still dine at the table with sinners. In an amazing way, Jesus was both full of grace and truth, and that's the church that we want to be, one that is full of grace and one that is full of truth simultaneously. And what we as a church want to do, and 
As you come in here week after week after week and you sit here and listen to, to sermon after sermon, you go to Bible studies and you go to, to small groups and anything associated with Redemption Hill Bible Church, the goal of all that is to prepare you to be a man and a woman of biblical conviction so that you would have the faith to stand up against a culture that is trying to tear you down. We want to train you and the next generation to be bold in their faith to stand for truth. We have no desire as a church to just do church. We don't just do church. We train, we equip, we empower you with the word of God, with the tools to be able to stand up against the culture and to live courageously for Jesus Christ. That's what we do. That's who we are. And we want to move you out of the middle. <laughs> move you out of there before the culture does. We believe the best way to reach the world is through holiness, not tolerance. And so oftentimes you'll hear, you will hear hard sermons because I believe this, that hard sermons produce soft hearts while soft sermons produce hard hearts. Now to bring this full circle here into to Peter who wrote this letter, the people he wrote this letter to were believers. It was during a time when the world was not tolerant of Christianity. The culture was filled with evil during this time. The culture was filled with corruption. The culture was filled with sin. These were newer generation Christians. There was no, as I've said before, generational Christianity there was no traditional Christianity. There was no online form Christianity, whatever that means. There was one kind of Christianity, and that kind of Christianity was this, persecuted Christianity. If you claimed Christ during this time, you were going to be persecuted for your faith. And so what Peter does here, in the midst of all this corruption, in the midst of all the evil that was going on, he knew that there was Christians who needed to be encouraged in the midst of all this moral corruption. And so what Peter does is he writes this letter, and this letter then would be the apostolic antidote to the moral corruption that was happening. And the antidote to moral corruption is this, spiritual maturity and Christ-like character. That's the antidote to moral corruption. Pursuing holiness, pursuing Christ-like character, what Peter commits to in this letter is this, your personal holiness, that you would become more and more like Jesus Christ. He wants you to mature in Christ. Now, Peter was writing this second letter here, most likely from prison. If you want a date, you can probably look at this up in your, in your Bible. It's somewhere between 60 and 67 AD for those historians out there. He's, he's, he's in prison. He writes this most likely before his death, and we know that he was beheaded, a martyr. And this here in 2 Peter then is, the, is, a, is a letter of warning, it is a letter of encouragement, and it is a letter of reminder to his readers to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to know this, this one of the key words, okay, a key word that you need to know, it's going to keep coming up over and over again as we study this. Uh, these three chapters together. It's the word knowledge. Knowledge. 16 different times 
Peter uses this word knowledge. Why does he, why does he use this word over and over and over again? He, he says this word and uses this word so that you would know and understand what the truth is. In fact, you can see it with me. You got your Bibles there? You put your head in it. Verse 2, may, greet, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Verse 5, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge Knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness. Over and over again, he talks about knowledge. He talks about the truth. He wants to remind you over and over and over and over again to be back in an intimate, knowledgeable, understanding who God is. In fact, I just read it, and you can see this for yourself in 2 Peter 1 and verse 2, grow in, in grace and peace, be multiplied right? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus. Now look over with me in, in chapter 3, the very last verse. In verse 18, what does it say there? It says this, but grow in what? In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. What does he do? He bookends this letter with this call for the believer to continually grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that presents then the framework for Peter to write this letter. In chapter 1 and verse 12 to 15, he even says these are even reminders to, to some of you to remind you of these qualities, that you know them and that you're established in them. He does it again in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 and in verse 18. This is very prominent to us in our understanding of this letter. Now, I want to just give you an outline here. Let me give you an outline of 2 Peter here, again, to kind of make the book maybe even a little bit smaller for us. Chapter 1 is this. The knowledge of the truth matures us. That's chapter one. Okay, the knowledge of the truth matures us. Chapter two then is this. The knowledge of the truth protects us from false teachers. If you look at chapter two, all of chapter two is dedicated to a warning against false teaching. A warning against false teaching. You say to yourself, there's, there's some false teachers out there today. I'm having a hard time identifying them. What's the best way for me to identify who a false teacher is? Well, you need to know who God is. You need to know what the truth is. And in understanding what the truth is, you will know a false teacher when you see them. And so the knowledge of the truth protects us from false teachers. Chapter three is this. The knowledge of the truth prepares us for Christ's return. If you look at chapter three, you can see the heading there. It says the day of the Lord will come. This second letter then is about knowing that the day of the Lord is coming, that Christ's return is coming to the earth. And so what, what do we do to prepare for that? We continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And not only that, to be effective as believers, to be effective believers, we need to know the truth. We need to know the truth. 
We need to know what the Word of God says. We need to be discerning Christians. We need to rightly evaluate God's Word. Listen, church, we can no longer be ignorant Christians in this world. We can no longer be ignorant to what God's Word has to say about who His Son is, about the gospel, about salvation. We'll no longer can get away with that. We have to know the truth. And Peter says that to us over and over and over and over again. In fact, look at verse 8 of chapter 1, or uh, chapter 1 and verse 8, it even says this, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, look what it says, they keep you from what? Being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me just boil down this whole thing for you. If you have one takeaway from me, it says it's, it's, it's literally this sermon. It's the you need to read your Bible and study the Bible more sermon. That's what this is. In fact, you will be hearing a heavy dose of that while we study 2 Peter. If you get up here and you say, oh, Joe's going to tell me again this week, I need to know my Bible more and I need to read my Bible more. I'm going to say, no, Joe didn't say that. Peter said that. Okay, so don't shoot the messenger. This is about what Peter is telling you to do. This is the, you need to be in the word of God more every single day so that you will know what to believe. So those beliefs will turn into convictions. And so those will convictions will then inform your conduct. So yes, you need to read your Bible more. You need to know God more. It matters and it matters greatly. So let's look at verse 1. Look what it says. Simeon, let's not think too much of this as, as this would be a name for Peter. He's talking about Peter, the same one that we studied here in, in uh, the last book in 1 Peter. And then he says this. He defines himself. Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we know that to be true, that Peter is a servant of, of Jesus Christ. We know that in his life, we can go back to the Gospels and see that in his life. The word here is, is doulos, a servant, someone who follows, in this case, Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But secondly, it says this, not only is Peter a servant, but he's also what? An apostle of Jesus Christ. Meaning this, he's writing this letter with apostolic authority. Peter here is not just sharing his thoughts. He's not just having in his, in his jail cell while he's sitting there thinking, oh, I'm just going to uh, leave a couple of letters behind for some people, just kind of, you know, just kind of back of a napkin kind of thoughts here for somebody. Hopefully they'll, they'll swing by and grab it someday. No, no, this is apostolic authority from Peter to the Christians for them to know how to handle the corruption that was going on in their lives. He's not just sharing his opinion about false prophets and false teachers either. He knows that they are a threat, and he gives them advice on how to counter them. So this is the authority of God's word. In fact, if you even look, he even mentions this himself in 2 Peter 1 in verse 20. He even says this. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is he saying here? He's saying this, that the words of Scripture are not the words of just man. The words of Scripture are the very words of God. 
And so Peter is writing this with that kind of authority. And there's two points here, one, one for each verse that I want to give you in our understanding of the rest of this, of, this, of this book. It lays the foundation for us. And the first point I want to give you here out of verse one is this, is that salvation comes by faith through the righteousness of God. That's number one. Salvation comes by faith through the righteousness of God. Peter writes this greeting and he says this to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was the first and primary concern of Peter, that they knew and understood their salvation. They knew it. They understood it. Listen, in order to protect yourself from a world that wants to see you fall away, you must know and understand your salvation. You must know where your faith comes from. You must know the righteousness of God that's been imputed into your life. You must be secure in that because if you're not secure in your salvation, then you are prey for the devil. And so Peter starts out and he says this to those who have what? Obtained a faith of equal standing. What is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about a faith that is personal. He's talking about a faith that's subjective. Here's the reality. Everybody has some measure of trust, some measure of belief. We all believe in something. You say, well, I, no, actually, I, I'm an atheist. That means I believe in nothing. Your belief is that you believe in nothing. That's a belief system. That's actually a system of belief the no belief. We all have some measure of faith. Look at it. This is a faith what? That has what? This is a faith that's been obtained. That's an important word there. That, that word there for faith, it means this. It means that it's been allotted to you. It's a faith that can't come from human achievement, but it's given to somebody by God. In Ephesians chapter two, it says that faith is a gift from God. So this a faith that's obtained was one that was given to you by God. It was not granted to you because, oh, you're, you're smarter than everybody else. You figured it out in the room and nobody else did. You have more knowledge than somebody else did. You're, you're a better person than somebody else. No, this faith was allotted to you. It was given to you by God, one that you did not earn and you could not earn. It's entirely God who initiated your faith, who started your faith, who gave you your faith, who will make sure that you will keep the faith so that when you come to the end, you will find yourself as an approved workman who is not ashamed. Faith is a gift of God that is given of you. It's the gracious decision of God. And Peter says it this way to those who have obtained the faith, who have been given a faith. Then it says this, of what? Of equal standing. What does that mean? It means this, that is given to those, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're male or female, whether you're young or old, it does not matter. God graciously gives out this faith. And it is a privilege to be one who is considered a child of God, who has faith. God is no respecter of persons, but has given us all fairly, listen to this, the same kind of faith to us that was also given to the Old Testament saints 
to the New Testament saints, to all the disciples and to the apostles and to everyone around us. It is no different. The faith is no different. The grace is no different. It is what? Of equal standing. Look what it says next. What is this faith rooted in? Well, it's rooted in what? The righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what it's rooted in. This is so great because our faith then and our equal standing, you ready for this? (laughs) Has nothing to do with our own righteousness. I mean, seriously, everybody in the room should have said amen to that. Thank you. I got one. It's not according to our righteousness that we're saved. It's not according to waking up every single day and saying, I've got to have a right standing with God. I better do more good than evil. It's not according to that at all. It's entirely according to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ into your life. And this incredible exchange happens. Your sinful heart for Christ's righteousness, so that now when God looks at the person who has confessed their sin and believed in Jesus Christ, he does not see the sin and their attempts at righteousness. He sees one thing. He sees the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ, in your life. That is how you are saved. There is so much confidence in that, That is way better than saying, I've got to keep and attain my righteousness every single day. No, you don't. You just have to believe in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is exactly what it says. Turn over with me because you've got to see this verse for yourself in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says this. It says, for our sake. For whose sake? (laughs) For our sake. He, God, made him, Jesus, what? To be sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our own righteousness is never enough to save ourselves, and it will never be enough to save ourselves. Only the righteousness of God to those who believe. And Peter says this is what the foundation of dealing with the moral corruption in this world must rest upon. It must rest upon this obtained faith by which It comes through Jesus Christ and secures you through the most difficult of times. Secondly, he says this, sanctification then is cultivated by the knowledge of God. Look what it says, verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is more like like a wish prayer. It says, may the grace be and peace be multiplied to you. Peter is desirous then that we would have grace, that we would have peace in our lives. And, and Peter wants this in great abundance to us. He wants it multiplied over and over and over again in our lives. This is his desire. This is what we want, right, church? We want, 
the grace of God multiplied over and over in our lives. We want the peace of God multiplied over and over and over in our lives. We want it in abundance. We all want that. And then Peter, in this prayer, he tells us it is multiplied to you. Look what it says, what? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Say, how do I obtain the peace of God in my life? How do I obtain uh, the grace of God in my life? How do I have it multiplied in my life? Again, I'm going back to what I said before. You need to know God. You need to know the truth. You need to go back to His Word. This word here for knowledge, it, it has to do with, with not only the facts of who Jesus is, but also that there's a personal relationship with Jesus involved. It's not just, as I like to say, it's not just head knowledge, it's heart knowledge as well. And for some people, they've got a lot of head knowledge, and it's just resting up here in a, in a cul-de-sac of all kinds of biblical truth, but it has not gone down into the heart. It has not been made personal to them. Thomas Schreiner says this, he says, the knowledge of God is personal and relational. It also involves intellectual content. Biblical writers never divorce the head and the heart in terms of spiritual growth. Grace and peace abound when the believers know more about God and come to know God in deeper ways in the crucible of experience. And this is what Peter wants for us. He's basically saying this, hey, you want to know how to live your life this week in the world that's morally corrupt and Satan is prowling around uh, trying to devour your soul? You say, you want to know what you need to do? Here's what you need to do. You need to grow in your knowledge and understanding of who Jesus Christ is. You need to go back to what truth is. You need to continually grow in that. Why? So that grace and peace would be multiplied to you over and over and over and over again. So yes, theology matters. Yes, doctrine matters. Let me say it like this. Every Christian is a theologian. Every Christian is a theologian. Why? Because every Christian believes something about God. And if you don't think you're a theologian, you need to start thinking like a theologian because you need to start studying who God is. That is the, the, uh, the thing that will fortify you. It matters what kind of theology you have. If I could circle back to what I said at the beginning, doctrine determines duty, belief determines behavior. And so we need to continually grow in who God is. Peter has already mentioned something like this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, like, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it, what? They may grow up into salvation. Jesus said it in his prayer in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What sanctifies the believer? The truth, the continual teaching and hearing of the truth. So Peter starts like this, he continues through this, 
He knows this, that the word of truth, the knowledge of the truth is going to mature us. Chapter 2, the knowledge of the truth is going to protect us from false prophets and false teachers. And in chapter 3, the knowledge of the truth is going to prepare us for when Christ returns. And then he closes it, closes it out in verse 18, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So my prayer for you then, it's Mother's Day. Moms, this is my prayer for you, that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but my prayer for you is what Peter's prayer was for the church. It was this, that the grace and peace would be multiplied in your life. The Lord knows how much you need grace and peace to raise children these days. You need it multiplied over and over and over, more and more and more grace, more and more and more peace. And so that's my prayer for you. If you're single, if you're a dad, if you're a college student, if you're just someone who goes to work every day, and if you're someone that is struggling, my prayer for you is the same, is that Grace and peace would be multiplied to you this week. That God's favor would be upon you and that you would determine to get to know God better, to study his word, and to see him as someone who has not only saved you, but he desires to sanctify you and to purify you as you go back in the world to fight the good fight of faith. And as a church, this is what we are committed to as well. Heavenly Father, thank you for this blessed truth that we have, this, this time of encouragement, potentially time of conviction, certainly a time of reminder for all of us to pursue you on a daily basis, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.